This is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Please uh, pray with me as I ask for God's blessing on his word. Father, we come before you as men and women who are tired, who are hungry, not just physically, but, but in our hearts and in our souls. We long for things to be different, for things in this world to be set right, for things in our lives to be set right. I pray that as we look at this passage that you would just meet us in this word. That you would comfort our hearts, that you would bind up our wounds, and that we would see the goodness and grace and mercy of your son Jesus. That in him, in his perfect life, in his substitutionary death on the cross, in his triumphant resurrection, Lord, that in him we have hope that, that we can withstand the sufferings of life and the and the the terror and fear of death lord that 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 you have a plan beyond this life for us i pray that you would help us to see that in your son jesus as we look at this word i pray that you would give us wisdom that you would help us to understand it that you would send your spirit upon us and open our eyes and open our hearts to know and understand what you want us to understand from this passage Especially, Lord, I ask that you would help me to talk about these things in a way that is good and true and helpful for these students. We thank you for your grace and mercy and for all that you've shown us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. One of the classic Disney movies, which they just, I guess, remade into a live-action film, is The Little Mermaid. And in The Little Mermaid, right, you all know the story. It's the story of a mermaid named Ariel who longs to be a part of a different world. She wants to be where the people are. And in, in, in pursuit of that, she wants to be on the surface world, right? She's a mermaid. She wants to uh, have a different life, to, be, to live on the surface of the earth, to, on the surface of the ocean with humans. She has amassed a treasure trove of artifacts for the surface world. These things that, 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 she has, that, that make her feel like she's closer to that world, that... If she can just get up there, she'll she'll be able to use them in some sort of way. But she's confused about it, right? In her song, Part of That World, she claims, I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's-its and what's-its galore. You want thingamabobs? Apparently she has 20 of them. Um, and she says, who cares? Big deal. Like, I want more. But, like, the, these artifacts, these things that she's daydreaming about, that she's fantasizing about, that she treasures, that she loves with all her heart... She has no idea what they are. She doesn't know the purpose. She doesn't know what functions they serve. They are essentially just like pieces of garbage to her, but she loves them. She doesn't know the purpose that they serve. She's, but she loves them because she's excited about exploring and experiencing this new way to live. And yet she doesn't know the first thing about these treasures that she has. If we're honest with ourselves, I think sometimes you and I feel the same way about the Christian life. It's this amazing treasure that we've received God's approval and grace in Jesus that we haven't earned, but he's given it to us. 
this opportunity to take part in the mission of building the kingdom of God here on earth, Christian community, Christian life, is an immense gift. But what's it for? What do we do with it? Is it just something we kind of like sort of exist as Christians in a bubble from now until we die or Jesus comes back? Is it just for preparing us to be in heaven, to be out of this world? What does God want me to do with my life is another way of asking, kind of talking about this. What is the church for? What's the church supposed to be doing? Sometimes like we can think concretely. It's easy for us to grapple on, like, okay, okay I think God wants me to pray and read my Bible and, and sort of do, quote, unquote, spiritual things. But what about the rest of my life? What about my job? What about my friendships? What about my relationships? What am I supposed to do with those things? And I want you to see in this passage that this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And another way of kind of asking these questions is, what is the purpose for which God has placed the flourishing community of believers into the world? Right? For people who are actually blessed, as it, is, as it says in the Beatitudes that we talked about the past couple weeks, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the poor in spirit, what is God using those people to do in the world? The flourishing community of Christians, right? those ones who are known for certain, uh, certain ways that they relate to God and towards other people, what is the effect that that flourishing community of believers ought to have in the world? And this is the main point that I want you all to see tonight. Because God has made us to flourish, right? Because God has made us to flourish. God has made Christians to flourish. We are called to give that life to other people as well. It is an outward-facing flourishing. And there's two functions that Jesus talks about. He uses metaphors in this passage. He uses uh, these, these word pictures, these images to describe and help us to understand what God is calling us to do. Salt and light. Two ways that believers give life in this world. Two ways that we transmit the flourishing that God has given to us to other people. Salt and light. Two points. Two ways that believers do that. And uh, I'm gonna, just going to give you the sort of like the meaning behind the metaphor, believers are to preserve and illuminate. To preserve and illuminate. Those are things that salt and light do. Preserve and illuminate. So first, preserve the world. Jesus says that his followers are the salt of the earth. You and I mostly relate to salt uh, either in, you know, the, the sort of form of table salt. We might sprinkle it on some food. It might give it some more flavor that it didn't have before. Or, you know, we might say that about someone. He or she is salty. What do we mean by that? We mean like that they're angry or, you know, bitter or something like that. But salt in the ancient world was used primarily as a preservative, a way to preserve food from, to keep food from going bad, and specifically meat, to keep meat from spoiling. Most bacteria, fungi, or other organisms that like lead to food going bad, I'm sure you all have done that. Like, I feel like I'm uh, gonna expose myself a little bit. I, I always forget that there are things in my fridge and like a few weeks later, I'll be like, oh, like, man, I wanted to eat that. And it's like way too late. It would probably kill me if I took a bite of it. Um, that happened in the ancient world, but it was way quicker because they didn't have refrigerators. And so what they would do instead is that they would immerse things in salt. Most bacteria, right, that leads to that food spoiling, it cannot survive in a highly salty environment. It cannot survive. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is that you're the salt of the earth. Like, you being salty, you being distinctively Christian, and being consistently, you know, in line with the, the values and beliefs that, that I care about, that Jesus cares about, will lead to decay and corruption being held at bay. 
or, or in, in other words, it will lead to the world being preserved from falling apart, from falling to pieces. It won't be completely turned back, right? Sin has, has thoroughly disrupted and, and twisted and corrupted things in this world, even our own hearts. But what Jesus is saying is if you're the salt of the earth, you are going to be part of preserving the world. And he says, and key to this is salt retaining its character as salt. Salt is distinct from the things that are around it, right? Chemically speaking, it's actually impossible for salt to lose its saltiness, but it, it can become diluted. It can become sort of just like everything else that's around it. That's what Jesus is saying. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If, if Christians stop actually acting and living like Christians, they're not going to have the same preserving effect on the world, on the culture around them that Jesus wants them to have. I think sometimes we, we lose this, we, we look at this passage and we, we're like, oh man, does this mean like if, if a believer loses their saltiness, are they going to be like thrown out and like stomped on by Jesus? That's not really what he's talking about. He's more, he's continuing the metaphor. He's saying that, that our salty nature has to do with blessing the world around us, of being a testimony to the work of God in Jesus. And if we lose our saltiness, then we're failing in our mission. It's about mission, not about salvation. And so, what that looks like is that, that at times, sadly, the church has lost its saltiness. It has bent the knee to things of this world. And, and that doesn't, by the way, just look like sort of aligning with one side of the political spectrum or the other. It also looks like adopting the, the means and the metrics for success that come from non-Christian sources, that come from the Bible, that, that, that are not from the Bible, rather. Jesus is saying in order for the church, for, for Christians to function in preserving good and, and holding back decay, they need to be distinctively Christian, right? The world, and, and by the way, that, that's not because Christians are somehow better people. Um, it's not that, oh, you know, bad people out there are doing bad things. And, and, you know, if we believe in Jesus, that's because really we're better people. And the, you know, the only Solution, right, is for if, if those people would just become Christians, then they would become good people. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a Christian recognizing I am a bad person and I need Jesus to help me. And when we come and take our sin, take our brokenness to Jesus, he is actually able to restore us. And through that grace, he is able to pour that love out from us into other relationships as well. One way of thinking this, uh, one one pastor wrote this, Christian saltiness is Christian character as depicted in the Beatitudes, committed Christian discipleship, both in deed and word. Mourning over sin, being meek and humble, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, longing for the good of other people, being merciful, treating other people with mercy, being pure in heart, being genuine, not duplicitous or deceitful being peacemakers, looking to make peace between you and your fellow man, longing to see the kingdom of God coming about in uh, every area of our lives. And y'all, when, when Christians in the church really decide to live this out and apply this in parts of their lives, um, historically, amazing things can happen. I think one of the most beautiful examples of this is the story of a guy named William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was a British politician in the 1700s, late 1700s. 
and um, he, in 1784, he became a member of parliament. In 1785, he became a Christian. He became convinced that he was a sinner, and he needed Jesus' love in order to make him right with God. And he saw, inseparably connected from that, that he had a duty to work for the poor, the oppressed, for people around him, to use his position and power as a member of parliament to effect positive change, to, to essentially to be salt, to push back corruption. And specifically, he decided it was his Christian duty to advocate for the freedom and improvement of life of those who had been enslaved. The slave trade was very powerful and prevalent at this time. And so from 1785, starting from, from then until... 1806, he introduced bills to outlaw the slave trade in Parliament every single year. And every single year, they were shot down. There was debates and, and fighting, and, and like there was arguments and setbacks. But in 1806, eventually, through his tireless work and his sort of making alliances with other people, um, most of them were, were Christians who saw this as their Christian duty. We need to destroy this evil. Finally, the slave trade was abolished in 1806, and it was essentially put in the law that British ships would prevent um, the slave trade from happening. And uh, eventually it would be completely outlawed and every slave would be emancipated by 1838 in British territory, in large part due to Wilberforce's actions. He saw this as his life's work of pursuing abolition and the freeing of slaves as something that was not just that something he kind of wanted to do, he saw it as his duty because he was a Christian. Like he saw it as his duty because he is called to be salt of the earth. He saw it as his duty because he knew that, that God loved all mankind regardless of their station or where they come from. That every person is born and made in the image of God and so therefore has intrinsic worth and value. It flowed directly from his theology. Right? In a similar way, like, I mean, that's like a very dramatic historic example but like God is calling you, if you believe in Jesus, to restrain evil, to, to push back decay and corruption in your lives as well, to oppose evil and darkness. And like it in both big ways and ways that feel small. What that means is that you must maintain your distinctiveness as Christians. That like that the values of kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, the fruits of the spirit, those are those are things that, that matter, that you should strive towards, that you should want those things more than values of the world, than, than power and money or comfort. And if you have to choose between the two, that it would be unchristian to sacrifice some of those things. One pastor writes, Perhaps the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. One big way, I mean, uh, you know, next year is going to be an election year. This is going to be, I mean, there's going to be a lot of traumatic things said on the internet, maybe said around you. Um, I think that this has profound implications for how we engage in politics. In Ephesians, Jesus says that we must speak the truth in love. And if you fail to do that, if you fail to speak the truth, you're not loving but if you fail to um, you know, love people as you speak the truth, that actually you're, you're taking something away from the truth. You're not sharing the truth with people in a way that where they can actually hear it. You're, you might be saying the truth, but it's just lip service to the truth. The truth and love. 
in a world where sound bites and sort of just owning the other side feels like the the best thing to do, um, Christ calls us to be salt in politics, to preserve a godly way of engaging with it. Don't stoop to the world's level just to win an argument, whether with a family member or a friend or a roommate. It might be, right, that being salt as a Christian is more important than winning, whatever that looks like. This maybe has more implication for you as you uh, go into the world, but be salt in whatever environment that you're in. You know, it's it's really easy to kind of uh, to just go along with, well, you know, this is just what everyone else does. To, you know, have an assignment and, you know, everyone else is kind of cheating. And so it's, man, it's kind of feels okay everyone else is doing it to kind of go along with that. But, but God sees that. And when we go along with the world, we are failing not just it's not just a duty in the sense that like God's going to be disappointed in us, but we are taking the goodness of our function as Christians away from the people around us as well. Arrest evil, like prevent its spread, corruption, decay, um, both as individuals and as churches. This this by the way, this passage is not just primarily aimed at each of you as individuals, but it's something that we as a church, as churches, ought to be doing as well. In the news over the last few years, there have been many scandals with pastors that kind of have come to light, and they've come to light years after the fact because many people who call themselves Christians decided, well, we want to keep the reputation of our church clean instead of, like, blowing the whistle and, and, and making known the wrongdoing. What Jesus is saying here is, like, you can't do that. You mustn't do that. Do not cover up Christian scandals just because you're worried it's going to hurt the name of your church. Right? The true church can handle it. Jesus is sufficient to meet um, every need. Use your influence, use your power, use your resources to cultivate a, a society that where, where the poor are cared for, where people can love one another. Jesus cares about the way that you handle your business practices just as much as he cares about your devotional life. And all of those things need to be viewed in light of God's word. There, all those things I've said, we could probably have a whole series just on the last, that paragraph, on like, what is a Christian businessman? What is a Christian politician? And so on and so forth. We don't have time for that. But, but what I want you to see is that there's no such thing as a divide between the secular world and the world that Jesus is calling you to build. And he is calling you to take the love and grace of God and the truth of the Bible into those spaces. God cares about your behavior and your ethic in every part of your life. But you're not just called to preserve good and hinder evil. You're not just called to be salt, to to sort of try to do social action or do good in your relationships to serve others. You're also called to be light. You're also called to illuminate. That's my second point. You must, we, we as Christians should illuminate the world, right? He doesn't, Jesus doesn't just use the metaphor of salt, but his people are also to be like light to the world, like a lamp illuminating a room. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Right? So maybe a little bit more self-explanatory for us than the salt metaphor. Right? When you turn a light on, you can see things. When you shine a light on something, it becomes visible. Our eyes need light to see and to perceive the truth of our surroundings. 
another the, the the city image right in the ancient world there was no electricity there's no uh, lights in the countryside and so a city that is on a hill you can see it for very very far away you can see its lights shining as beckoning as a as a safe haven for travelers knowing that their destination is near this metaphor of light it points to the, uh, the the enlightening of mankind through the revelation of God's will for his people. One of the consistent metaphors that God uses to describe his word actually is that it's light. God's word itself is light. It illuminates us. It helps us to see who God is and what he wants for us. John chapter 1, uh, John writes about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is light, is what the Bible is saying. Jesus himself is light. The, the, the message that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners by his grace is part of the light that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5. But it's not just then, it's... it's um, it's described in uh, in prophecy about the Messiah that the, the the one who would come and redeem Israel and redeem God's people was described as light in Matthew four the chapter right before this um, Matthew describes the purpose of Jesus in terms of light he's saying that the the prophet Isaiah's words have been fulfilled and he quotes Isaiah he says the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He's saying like that the, the Gentiles who were outside of the light of God, because they haven't, they weren't a part of Israel, they didn't get to read the Old Testament. Jesus has come and has gone to them, and light has shone upon them. He is the light. He's the light of this passage. It's interesting, right? Like he's described elsewhere as the light of the world. But now Jesus is saying this to his followers. You are the light of the world. You are light. How can that be? He is the light, and our light is a reflection of his light. Like the moon reflects the sunlight at night, so we are called to reflect the light of Jesus upon the world. The way that we do that in verse 16, it says, In the same way, right, that a light set on a stand gives light to all in the house, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Shining your light, essentially what Jesus is saying, shining your light on others means letting others see your good works. What does that mean? The good works that Jesus is talking about here essentially refers to any good conduct, any words, any beliefs that you have as a Christian and share with other people. It could mean the way that you treat them. As someone who is gracious and kind, that has been shaped by the love that God has for you. It could mean explicitly sharing the good news of Jesus to them, of evangelizing them, of, of talking about who Jesus is for you and what it means for you. And the result of people observing these good works is that they would give glory to God, that they would know God, that they would worship him and essentially become Christians. What the Bible is saying is that people, apart from God, are in darkness. That they can't see what is going on. That they can't even see themselves. Because people, apart from the Holy Spirit, um, don't realize the, the dire situation that they're in. That 
apart from Jesus, that there is nothing that we can do to be good people. We can be good according to sort of the, the, the standards of the world, which is just, you know, kind of be generally nice to people. But to be a good person, to be a righteous person, the way that the Bible calls us to is to be perfect. To be perfect, not just in our external actions towards others, but to be perfect in our hearts. To never have evil intentions towards other people. We are incapable of doing that. And so we need the word of God, the light to shine on us, to show us those things and to see, to show us how Jesus can meet us there and to bind us up and to fix us, to, to show us grace, to forgive us our sins. Right? So, so evangelism is included in this. Telling other people about Jesus is included in this, but it's not the entire deal. Right? Letting your good work shine before others, it's not just about evangelism. It's more than evangelism, but it's also not less than that. The good works that are to shine before others, um, another point, is um, they're, they're actually just Jesus' works, right? We're called to reflect Jesus' light to others. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that Christians are God's workmanship, and that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, to do good works, but they are good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Whatever good works Jesus is talking about here, they're not ones that you have to do alone. They're not ones that that Christians have to do on their own. They're ones that Jesus has prepared for us to do, and that all we do is to reflect his light to others. We're called to shine a light, essentially, on Jesus, to hold him up, for him to be the the, the center, the focus point, to make him the the thing that we rejoice in. In the mid-2010s, I think 2016, there was a group of researchers from MIT and they decided to analyze essentially which Wikipedia pages were the most uh, about people, which Wikipedia pages about human beings were the most translated into other languages. They're trying to essentially measure what, who is the most popular person in the world? Who do people like to read about on Wikipedia? And so they wrote some programs. They wrote this like algorithm to sort of just hit go on, and so they didn't have to like comb through all the Wikipedia pages. Um, to essentially measure who has the most Wikipedia pages translated into other languages. As their theory went, the more popular the person, the more languages the page would be translated into. So they made this program, but they kept getting a result that made them think that their link was broken or that that their program was not working. Because in the top five, alongside other maybe, you know, more... Uh, reasonable or uh, let you know you would think that they would be there type of people and the top five every single time this program kept kicking out the name Corbin Blue some of you may know him he was the other guy in High School Musical so Zac Efron was the main guy Corbin Blue is the other guy he's actually like really talented but he hasn't been in much um, but he was there in the top five every time Corbin Blue it went at one point it went Ronald Reagan Jesus Corbin Blue, number three. His Wikipedia page was translated into over 200 languages. Like, who who is doing this? That like, how is this true? How is Corbin Blue number three? And they were that's what they were asking. They were like scratching their heads. They could not figure it out. They're like, is there just this huge cultural like movement around Corbin Blue that we don't understand? Like, what is going on? Uh, But but essentially, someone looked into this sort of mystery. And they looked at the profiles on Wikipedia that were writing and maintaining these pages, right? Wikipedia is entirely user-run. If I went 
and learned another language. I could translate Corbin Blue's page into another language, uh, but I'm not going to. Uh, but it turned out that they sort of analyzed the profiles that were doing all this. And the vast majority of pages that were written were edited from one profile that came from one IP address in Saudi Arabia. So they figured out, essentially, there's this one Saudi Arabian Corbin Blue fan who's made it his life's work to translate the Corbin Blue Wikipedia page into other languages. And that's just what he's been doing. Like, probably 150 times. He's made it his life's work to translate Corbin Blue's Wikipedia page to shine a light on Mr. Blue for people from all over the world to be able to read about him, to know about him, to, to know his work. In a similar way, what it means to be a Christian, to be the light of the world, is to shine a light on Jesus, to make that your life's work, so that other people can see Jesus and to see his goodness and his grace and his mercy so that they can know that grace and mercy for themselves, right? It's one thing to know about something. It's another thing to know how it feels, to know what it tastes like. You shining a light on Jesus allows other people to taste that goodness too. Jesus isn't calling us through this to, to sort of separate ourselves from the world. He's not calling us to, to be monks or to just go off and be super spiritual and just sort of spend time in a closet praying and reading the Bible. In order for light and salt to function the way they're supposed to, they have to be spread out in the midst of the things that they're affecting. We have to go to and be in the world. Right? The only way that salt works is if it's spread throughout the dish that it's seasoning or preserving. The only way that light works is if it can be seen by those it's illuminating. So Jesus is calling us to go into the world, to go into work jobs, to have relationships with non-Christians, to have relationships with people that are different than us. And to fulfill these functions of salt and light. To be connected with people who, who are very different than you. To have friendships and fellowship with non-believers. And to be for them salt and light. That's why God is making you to flourish. Another implication of this is that evangelism matters. A lot of times we say that word and I think that people either get super intimidated or super hyped up. But at its core, evangelism is just sharing good news, sharing really good news, sharing the best news possible. Like, don't you, I think most of your friends, no matter their spiritual situation, they really want it to be true that like there's life after death and that the end of this world isn't just the sun to burn out and for like all life to exist. I mean, I really want that to be true. They want that to be true. Eternal life is on offer. Abundant, bottomless, endless joy is freely available for those who believe in Jesus. Forgiveness for sins, no matter like what the most shameful thing that you've ever done, there is forgiveness for that. No matter the most grievous injury that you've experienced, there's healing for that in Jesus. There's an end to suffering, sin, and shame. Like, don't you want your friends and loved ones to experience that? At its, at its core, it's just sharing that good news. That's real. It's not just a fable. It's not just something that's made up. It's not just, oh, it's a comforting myth. Like, there's historical fact behind it. And you get to partake in that. You get to taste a glimpse of it now, the foretaste of, of the eternal, infinite nature of those things and the life that is to come. One very simple, easy thing to do for all of you. Like, you don't have to be able to explain all of that or to, to answer every objection or, or question that people have. 
Um, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is uh, actually about a guy named Nathaniel. Um, <laughs> maybe it's a little, it's kind of weird to say that, but um, his friend Philip meets Jesus, and Philip comes and tells Nathaniel, "Oh, we met Jesus. We met this guy. He's the Messiah. He's coming to save the world." And Nathaniel's like, "Yeah, right. Whatever." No way. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip just says, hey, like, yeah, come check it out. Invitation. That's something super simple, super easy that y'all can all do. Invite someone to church. Invite someone to RUF. Invite someone into a place where they can experience the salt and light of Jesus. Um, Salt and light have a connection beyond this passage, by the way, in the Bible. Um, In the Old Testament, both of them are, are... uh, what's called covenantal. They're covenantal symbols. In, in places where God essentially makes a covenant or, or sort of defines his relationship with his people, both salt and light have dimensions in there. They're connected with God's testimony of his faithful love. In Leviticus and Numbers, and uh, a lot of the sacrifices that the Israelites were to make, they were supposed to season their sacrifices with salt. Salt ha- not only has the idea of preservation, but of permanence. God's love will never depart from his people. And light is seen throughout the Old Testament as, as a symbol of God's presence. But also, you know, in addition to the, his revealing his will of salvation for his people. And so it's not just right that we're to be salt, to, to preserve things, to hold back evil, or um, you know, to be light, to illuminate, to talk about Jesus. But essentially to be salt and light is to say that we ought to live, believe, and act in a way that is a reminder, an announcement, and a billboard to the world that God saves sinners in his son Jesus and that his covenant love never fails. That is true for you tonight if you believe in Jesus. And uh, if you don't, um, I would like to invite you into that. Man, um, so glad that you're here. Jesus loves you, and, and the things that we've talked about are things that you don't do alone. Jesus is going with you and before you and preparing you to be salt and light in every context, whether it's school, friendships, work, uh, you name it, Uh, which I think is good news because sometimes it can be intimidating to think about going into the world like that. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this hope that we have. Uh, You have not left us in the dark, but you have made clear what you want us to do. When we ask the question, God, what should I do with my life? Um, We don't have to just figure it out on our own. But Lord, you are here with us. Uh, You are for us. I pray that as we uh, close the night out and worship the Lord, that you would just impress these things upon our hearts and convince us, remind us even more of the love that you have for us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.